0: Okay, Paul. So um, I went back and listened to uh, uh, my previous five podcasts and I noticed I have a pattern. I've been saying everyone before each one, I say, this is going to be a fun one. And uh, you know this one's no different. This is going to be a fun one. Um, this is part two of seeing and understanding risk. And we left off uh, from the first podcast after we had described the term risk and what it means uh, and, and how to see and understand it. And we, and we, deferred the conversation about the differences between individual uh, perceptions of risk, uh, risk intelligence, and then finally tolerance for risk, and how organizations perceive their intelligence and their tolerance. And so today, let's start with that. And and let's build it up, because okay. we, we see organizations as combinations of systems and people. So before we can talk about an organization, and this is actually why we put the organizational reliability last in the sequence. If we don't understand systems and we don't understand people, then we can't really manage reliability as an organization until we do that. So let's start today with individual uh, perception of risk. And why don't you kick it off with some of the work you've done around that topic?
1: Oh, yeah, this, uh, this will be fun, because one of the things that's probably carried me further than anything in this work is this concept of being curious about how people see risks differently. And having spent 30 years as a firefighter and a flight medic, um, I remember I had a younger brother who base jumped, and uh, I thought he was an idiot for doing it. I mean, he's a brilliant guy, but it's like, Michael, why are you jumping off these really high buildings with this little parachute throw out? I mean, that's incredibly dangerous. He goes, well, you you ran into burning buildings for 30 years. And, and I said, yeah, but I can run out and, and you can't unjump, right? I mean, you know, gravity doesn't work that way. <laughs> and <laughs> and, and we, we had a really interesting conversation about it. But the more research I did into risk, you know, there's three terms, I think, that are important for us to discuss um, because it helps it for me to define things into like how we get where we are, you as an airline pilot and me as a firefighter and it's, um, it's risk perception, risk intelligence, and risk tolerance. And I want to cover those kind of in, they're, they're, they're loosely described. And when I say that, I mean, you could go online and look and find different descriptions. But for our work, we, we pretty much consider the fact that risk perception is the combination of your risk intelligence and your risk tolerance. So your risk perception is built on these two other subcategories. What's my risk intelligence and risk tolerance? So let's talk about each one of those briefly and, and think about like maybe some situational stuff, Scott, that we could give as examples. Risk intelligence is builds the moment you're born. And, and as you grow up, risk intelligence is built through experience. It's the don't touch the stove, it's hot. And and part of the thing for us as parents and even as employers is, you know, we get frustrated when we try to describe risk to people or to our children, and we're not doing a good enough job of describing the risk of the quote unquote hot stove. And they've got to try it themselves. And then, then it's like, oh yeah, you're right, it is hot. And that builds their intelligence. Um, yeah. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, that that's the that, the that's um you know a fascinating topic because, because what we know about humans is that uh we tend to learn best through direct experience. It's that uh, learning by doing uh, approach. But, but as, as we have both discussed many times, sometimes we learn the wrong lessons from yeah, absolutely. direct experiences. And, and there, there's a statement that I like to always debunk. It's, it's the Albert Einstein quote that uh, he's quoted as saying, uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result and people laugh and say, oh, what you take from that is once you get that experience, keep doing it uh, because you're you're always going to get the same result, which is not true Uh, because you can do the same thing. You can take a a risk taking behavior, talking on a cell phone while driving, uh, cutting a corner while flying an airplane or fighting a fire, and you'll get good results. In fact, you may get outstanding results until you get catastrophic results. Because conditions change.
1: Yeah, I think that's the important thing we want to get across here is that risk intelligence is, um, and this is where curiosity comes in, because risk intelligence is built on experience. And I, in my career, and you and yours, probably did several things that afterwards we realized were dangerous or riskier than we wanted them to be in retrospect, but it had always worked. So I think your your analogy of the driving and talking on a cell phone is fine. It's like it, we know it's against the law in a lot of states, but, what we, but we don't necessarily perceive it as risky because nothing bad's ever happened. And because we haven't had a bad experience associated with it, that reinforces in our risk intelligence that it's really not dangerous for us. Yet if, if you pulled up next to me, and you're on your phone. I'd literally tell my kids, "Look at that guy. He's on his cell phone. You know, he's that's dangerous." And then if my phone rang, I'd pick it up and like, "Oh, look, Grandma wants us over for dinner," <laughs> because if for some reason it's unsafe for you to do it. So the risk intelligence part, it's important for us to understand that every single person has different risk intelligence because we've had different life experiences. So when you're in a conversation and you're frustrated why someone doesn't see risk associated with violating a particular rule or policy, it has to do with the fact that they've had experiences around that that does not trigger a value, uh, you know, something that they don't feel like their own personal values are at risk if they do this, you know, step over the bar and stand, don't stand on the other side of this near the cliff, you know, those kinds of signs that, that does not compel some people. Now risk tolerance is different. Risk tolerance is literally the trigger where you will make a change based on whatever you're doing being too risky. Um, and the best way I can describe this is to go back to driving. I think that um, if you really wanna know your own risk tolerance, I tell people is driving the, driving the center lane of a three lane highway In and hopefully I'm, I'm talking about the lanes all going in the same direction here. Um, that would be poor risk intelligence to do it the other way, but driving the center lane at like five miles an hour over the speed limit and just listen to the voice in your head. And when you, when you come up behind somebody who's, who's going 55 miles an hour in, in this faster lane, you're like, Hey, you know, dude, seriously. Or when you see people fly by you at 80 miles an hour, you're like, that guy's an idiot. And, and that it gives you an idea that like, where are you on your risk perception? What's too fast for you on the freeway and what's too slow. And, and, and those are the kind of things you can think about even at, at home or at work, you know, what are the things that you'll tolerate that other people won't and vice versa. And the risk tolerance is built on how they built their intelligence around what was safe and what wasn't. And this comes when we talk Scott about competing priorities when we have that competing priority discussion, the reason it's in the risk box is if I've got two things to do, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manage the one that I perceive as most risky. So if I've got a safety rule I'm supposed to follow or a patient that needs immediate X, Y, or Z, I might actually, if I don't see risk in violating the safety rule, but I do see risk in not getting the operational work done, I'm going to do the work and do the shortcut and, and I think that's where we have to pull those two together.
0: Yeah, so you just introduced another element here, uh, rules and, and humans by, uh, by evolution aren't rule followers. And um, this becomes clear to me when uh, you know, I live in the state of Texas and Mexican restaurants are ubiquitous, uh, but I know we're not rule followers because when we go to a Mexican restaurant and we order food, usually something hot like fajitas, and the waiter may bring a plate of, of hot fajitas, and, and the plate is steaming. And the first thing the waiter will say to the diner is, don't touch the plate, it's hot. And of course, as the, the waiter walks away within microseconds, most of us, me included, are going to touch the plate. We, we know the rule. We don't have to have a reading sign. We understand the rule, but our brains are wired to, to touch the plate to determine it, does this rule apply to me? And that applies to speed limits or policies in hospitals and procedures. W- what we organizations struggle with is they, they put rules in place and then turn a blind eye to noncompliance until something bad happens. That that outcome bias. Um, so, so it reinforces the the perception that individuals start to gain is that I I can break rules because. I'm good at what I do, or I have a good reason for it. and you mentioned earlier uh, what we call the fundamental attribution bias <clears throat> that that when I break a rule, it's okay because I know what I'm doing. when you do it, you know you're a bad person but but that plays into the individual perception, intelligence, and tolerance you yeah may... I
1: think, yeah, one way to think about this, I think is when you're when you're um people get frustrated that these different risk perceptions don't always lead to the outcome that they want. And what I mean by that is, let's take an example. When we coach someone to risk, the real idea behind that is to coach them to see if you're the leader, the supervisor, the manager, to see the way either the organization or you personally as a supervisor perceives risk. Because technically, if I can can imbue you with my risk intelligence around something, say speeding or driving through traffic signs or whatever it is, I don't even need a rule to enforce that because if you see the risk, you won't do it. So if I can, if I can successfully tell you the next time you do this, do you see the risk? If the answer is yes, then and I do see it and, and I'll comply. That's a pretty successful coaching. But what if you say, I don't think that's a risk. And I had this conversation with my chief officer once the fire chief of our department when I was running operations and I won't get into the details of it, but I was doing something and I was, I was ignoring a rule that he had. And and he said, is this a rule you don't want to enforce? And I said, I I just don't see where it's risky to break that particular rule. And and, and he walked me through his perception of risk. He goes, this is why I think it's risky. I said, I still don't see it, Jeff. And and he said, put it on your list. (laughs) And I said, what list? He said, the list of things you can do when you're the fire chief. (laughs) And, and, And I mean, what he was trying to communicate to me was, you know, at a certain point, if I can't communicate risk to you, it comes down to the enforcement piece, right? It's like, because I'm still, somebody's going to take ultimate responsibility for organizational risk. And if you want to be that lead dog at some point, then you can set risk tolerances for the department. And it was, I mean, we all laughed about it. And I, I, we use that all the time today. We just say, you know, you don't like it, put it on your list. But, but, the, but the message really is associated with that, right? It's like, I can't convince everyone to come to my perception of risk. Yeah, and that's what we
0: described later in the uh, Reliability Response Guide is the, uh, has the organization set clear expectations? And we use that word deliberately because expectations can be delivered in, in a variety of ways. It can be a rule, a policy or a procedure or it can be this cultural understanding of what the organization will and won't tolerate. What, what's, what's difficult though, is when individual managers have different tolerances for risk and it, it, we, we expect that individuals will have different tolerances, but individual managers represent the, the business at large or the organization at large. So how does an organization communicate? Well, first off, do they have cohesion around the, what they communicate? Are they co- cohesive? Yeah,
1: but what's the best example of that? You think about if anyone out there who's a parent, I mean, it, it's like two, it's like mom and dad. You know, well, mom will let me do it, so I'll go ask dad, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, right? I mean, that's real, because I know my sons would come and say, hey, dad, can I do this? And, and my very first statement most of the time was, have you asked your mom? Right. And you know, and they were like, "Yeah, she won't let me do it." I'm like, "Well," and even if I didn't think it was risky, I was like, "Well, you probably shouldn't do it." Not because I thought it was risky, because it was actually more risky to go against what my wife wanted to do. So you know, you start thinking about it, and its managers are no different, right? They all have different perceptions of how the rules should be interpreted.
0: Right. So, so you you said something earlier that I think relates directly to this conversation, and that is, when um, Paul, you and I had a had, had a discussion before we turned on the recording here today. Um, we work in uh, many industries like firefighting and EMS, uh, where there may be a fine line between what many on the outside perceive as reckless and what what we might say somebody acted heroically. Uh, and that's a particularly oh, wow. tough space uh, to, to, to be in when we look at how does your organization tolerate risk? And you made some comments about, you know, the the medals and awards you have on the wall for acts of heroism, you know, as a firefighter, where had you had a different outcome, you might've been punished. Um, Speak speak to that just for a moment.
1: Well, I I think this is something that we don't recognize is, you know, the organization and the individuals is is this collection of individuals. and, And as you mentioned earlier in our discussion today is, you know, how we act sends a really powerful message. And we gave medals all the time. And I I was on the recipient side of getting them for stuff that had it gone wrong. I'm sure there would have been a NIOSH or an OSHA investigation as to why I did what I did or we did what we did. And then the person died or the outcome was terrible or someone got permanently injured or damaged. But the fact of the matter is it didn't stop us from giving out hero medals, I call them, to people who did really dangerous stuff. So you're walking a fine line all the time because we actually loosened our policies and procedures way up um, because it turned out that you can't be really highly prescriptive in firefighting and EMS. You you can be prescriptive up to a point. And then after that, it's it's the person's intelligence and experience and everything else that's going to weigh in. And just as we talked about, my risk intelligence is going to be flawed. I can name multiple opportunities where I undertook a tactic or a strategy that ended up being wrong, but it was built on previous risk intelligence. And there's some interesting books you know out there about this by Gary Klein and others that talk about like how we make these decisions in the immediate based on our previous risk perception and they're wrong.
0: Yeah, so so to carry a thread that we mentioned earlier, and, and this is a pretty dramatic one, but uh, the Derek chauvin, Murder of George Floyd. Uh, Clearly, in retrospect, the world says he used excessive force, and and he absolutely did. But he had also received commendations twice earlier in his career involving use of force. So, what happens when an individual's perception and tolerance exceeds or goes astray of what the organization believes? Because to a person, everyone in the that police department in Minnesota said George Floyd's murder. The force used and that did not represent what we had taught, nor what we would tolerate. And yet that was allowed to happen in that particular circumstance. So how does an organization effectively draw that line, if you will, between individual tolerance and organization? Uh,
1: you know, this can go back towards something we mentioned in our earlier podcast, which is if all you do is investigate the tip of the iceberg events to find fault then you're not going to find these risk trends that are under the water that are going to come back and bite you. So just like we should be analyzing the things that went wrong, we should be analy- we should we should put no less scrutiny on the hero stuff, stuff that happens or the things we're going to hand out medals for to draw some lines around what we actually think is acceptable behavioral choices and risks that are undertaken in the future. Or if people are going to undertake those risks, give them the equipment and the training to do it appropriately. You know, um, and, and we can do that. We can look at the system and say, oh, we didn't even understand that you were going to be faced with these risks. Let's enhance our equipment or enhance our training, not to necessarily make it safe, but to make it safer or less likely that we'll have a bad outcome. But you have to actually examine it first and see whether or not I or someone else overstepped in that hero moment uh, yeah. based on what you know what we do we want because I'm going to keep repeating that behavior if I got affirmed right
0: right and you know I, I'm, I'm smiling here because um, I'm thinking about the movie Top Gun and, and 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 there's something in that movie that of course you know Hollywood recognized people people attracts people just like there's something in the American psyche that values rugged individualism but as a pilot, and it picked an airline pilot and the chief safety officer, it was like working against that, that perception that you can be top gun and be an airline pilot. You, you don't
1: want that, you don't want Maverick flying your 787. <laughs> no, and, I don't. <laughs> and yet, and but yet I do the, want him flying my fighter pilot, my my fighter jet fighting the bad guys, right? Perhaps,
0: perhaps, until, until he goes astray. And you know yeah. that's the that's the mystique uh, that Hollywood has helped. Promote. You don't want physicians acting like Dr. House or uh, the physicians on the old TV show when you and I were going at match. You know, drinking in the OR. The, those types of things make for good TV and movies. But at the end of the day, those types of behaviors, are, when they are become clearly reckless, an organization has to be able to, to in good faith, show where the organizational tolerance is and, and communicate why.
1: And I think that's one of the things that helped us be a safer fire department is that, you know, in the as I became the assistant chief of operations, we undertook a pretty large effort to examine the things that went right with the same energy as the things that went wrong, and try to determine whether or not we would make different training choices, different equipment choices, and better operational choices um, in the future when those types of things occurred. So I think that's an important thing, is. is organizational risk tolerance and risk intelligence can't be set by that and i want to do one want to mention one other quick thing about the risk intelligence that has a as a tie into that crew resource management or that teamwork we know a lot that really effective teams communicate a lot they're open with each other and they they throw around concerns hey scott i'm a little worried about this what do you think about doing a or b instead and In healthcare, a lot of times, that's considered like a chicken little thing. It's like, oh, great, here's Paul. He's worried about everything. In a really healthy team, that's seen as increasing each other's risk intelligence, right, I mean, I'm gonna mention to you what I'm concerned about, and you might be, I'd never really been concerned about that before. I wonder why Paul's seeing a risk where I don't see it. And so this has a lot deeper ties than people think. It's not just the first box in the sequence of reliability. It really seeps into everything we do around human performance, what how we train people and the behaviors, why we aren't following rules. I but think it's would... why it's so important that it's the number one thing in the sequence.
0: Yeah, seeing and understanding, right? Because it affects our systems because our systems are designed by people and the designers can't expect people to always follow the procedures and the rules. That's where, you know, I think one of the contributions we've made Uh, around systems thinking is the idea of the difference between an effective system and a resilient system, because resilience in a system has to expect human noncompliance. And think about in our personal lives, whether it's just before this call, uh, Tell the little incident about the coffee
1: that you just experienced. Oh, geez. Yeah. I I literally this morning walked over to the Keurig machine in my office, placed my coffee cup there, put a little bit of creamer in it, walked over, did something else, got distracted, walked by the Keurig, hit the start machine. And I went over to get my cup of coffee to talk to Scott. And it was empty because it was next to the machine. Luckily, Keurig had a socio-technical system and a capture opportunity. And it all went into a little strainer thing and not all over my countertop. But, you know, those are those things that...
0: Right. So, so two points. One is to let our listeners know, we received no financial uh, remuneration from Keurig. Uh, is that... <laughs> And that Paul has selected. But, but a coffee machine is a socio-technical machine, right? If you don't use it properly or as it was designed, then you won't necessarily get results. But that particular manufacturer actually does put some thought into the human side of engineering, expecting people to, to do certain things Uh, sometimes out of order or or in non-compliance.
1: Well, and let's look at that from the context of like how your risk intelligence changes and grows and the socio-technical system should. So if I go look at my older machine, which is still around somewhere, it didn't have that capture opportunity. So I assume that people made enough human errors around and they decided to put that in place. And I tell people to stop looking at work for examples of this because... If you can't do, if you think this, what we're talking about is a work strategy, it's, you won't ever really get it. You've got to see it. Risk intelligence is almost best described if you have two kids and you think about when the first one, your first child, when they drop their binky on the ground, you'd like boil it before you gave it back to them. And on the second one, you're like picking the dog hair off and sticking it back in their mouth. You're like, this is good for your immune system. Trust me. And you know, by the third one, I, I like to say I came from a family of six because my dad had spares. You know, I don't think he really expected us all to get to be adults. But when you think about like how risk perception and tolerance, these tolerances and these intelligence has grown and changed over time, some people are still stuck ten and fifteen years ago. They haven't allowed their risk intelligence to evolve, and they haven't had that curiosity around it. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think, I think all of us as humans sometimes, um, you know, whether, we're, whether we are too conservative or, or not conservative enough, we, we often learn the wrong lessons from our successful outcomes. And so when you said earlier in the fire service, you would go back and dissect what went right and, and what could have gone differently had conditions changed. We, we were too quick as humans to say, I did something, I got a good result, I can keep doing it. Uh, and, and so one of the messages for organizations to communicate is none of us are gonna have enough experience to see all the possibilities associated with our behaviors. We only know what we've experienced or what we've observed. And yet an organization has the ability to, to look at collective experiences and see things that individuals may not be able to see. And, and so how do you, as a parent or as an organization, Teach those that haven't experienced something adverse that it can happen to you. Uh, you know, we're seeing that, and today uh, with, with vaccinations, people that don't believe in the science around vaccines uh, aren't, aren't aren't experiencing it personally until they do,
1: and then it's too late. I, I don't think organizations recognize Scott the value of getting people engaged right up front on the concept of risk. There, it's much easier to tell you. We created standard operating guidelines 6.9.2, subsection E. We've emailed it to everybody. And that's our organizational perception of risk. And to me on the front line, I'm like, great, another policy, just what I needed to add to the BHB, which is my the big honking binder. And and, and you know, so it's like I needed another BHB page. So it's in there. Now I can definitely hold on to that if there's a tornado because I won't blow away. But nobody knows what's in the BHB. And we don't do a very good job organizationally of, of drawing a picture. And I think all of us as adults, we learn a lot better if you can show me examples of how this risk is going to affect the organization, but we don't take the time to do it, not recognizing the value of it. So what we do is we push a policy out and we expect everyone to see the risk the way we do, or we mistakenly believe we're gonna manage risk by creating more policies, right? It's like, well, people won't break that rule.
0: Right. In, so in the four minutes and 31 seconds we have remaining, uh, let's, let's sort of sum up where we think organizations can make improvements. So, so when an organization comes to a determination about where their tolerance for risk lies, and, and, and if you don't start promoting and ex- setting those expectations, don't be surprised when individuals go astray if the organization hasn't done a good job of that. But, but as you and I've discussed many times, Education is a necessary but not sufficient first step. In other words, you can't always change behavior through education, but you won't get to behavioral change without changing the perception of the individual. And in some cases that takes a lot of time. So, so then you're left with, well, the consequence of, of non-compliance. So, so between education, changing perceptions individually, which takes a lot of time and effort, and then the direct consequences of what happens when they don't, how how do you see organizations getting to that place where they can feel satisfied that the expectation has been set?
1: Well, part of it, I think, is the fundamental understanding of aligning things. And I know we'll do that in another podcast, but you know, the alignment of policies and processes and risk perceptions um, is a very important part of this process. So maybe use a real quick anecdote is we at one point in time, had a seven-page policy, a checklist on how we were supposed to hand patients off to the next provider. And of course, no one did it. They pencil whipped it. It was seven freaking pages. So you know, I'm, I'm not gonna stand there and you're a nurse and say, well, they don't have this, they don't have this, they don't have this, they don't have this, next page. So we, we wrote one that was a card that hung around your neck and we had the entire policy written on the back. And people were like, oh my God, how big was the print? I was like, it was one sentence. Here's what our policy said. Paramedics will pass on all pertinent healthcare information to the next provider, period. Now, our attorneys were like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What's pertinent? It's like, if you, if you don't know what's pertinent, you should be a barista and not a paramedic. So there's a whole concept here about how, what needs to be prescriptive and what doesn't need to be prescriptive. And, and how do we, how do we, commu- if I'm going to give you the power to do that, I have to communicate the risks associated with it. And that's an important part of this alignment process that I know we'll talk about in the future.
0: Yeah, so you just extended our series on seeing and understanding from <laughs> two, two podcasts to three. So we're gonna do a third on that same topic, uh, but, but it's, it's because it's worthy of, of, the, of some time spent on it, uh, how we communicate that. And the, let's, let's sort of wrap up this discussion with an agreement that uh, organizations that move from rule-based to risk-based are taking a step toward high reliability. You don't do away with the rules, but you do with less rules, typically in number, less policies and more precise understanding of what, what you're trying to manage. You're not trying to manage to the rule,
1: you're managing to the risk. Exactly, and you'll see highly, highly prescriptive policies that are pages and pages long We'll, well, you know, those will go away in the mo- in most cases, if you don't have the time to execute it at the front line, then don't write a 17 page policy. So that will be the topic of another one because you will go risk based. And I think that's our next thing is how do we move from rule based to risk based? Um, yeah, great, if, great conversation.
0: And it's going to be fun because it as all of these podcasts are, uh, it's going to be fun because you're you're working sometimes. At cross purposes of your regulators, who are typically very rule and outcome based, or or even biased. So, so how do you how do you work in an industry or an environment where your regulator, plural, uh, is expecting certain procedural uh, compliance? And they haven't yet moved to the to the place where the organization is managing the risk, not just the rule. And we've got
1: some great examples of that. So I'm excited about that next new third section of this podcast. So I think what we'll do is we can explore that because we've got some experience with clients on how they've managed that. And you in the airline industry have some thoughts about it.
0: Yeah, that'll, that'll be a fun one. And uh, it's going to be so much fun, Paul, that I think we ought to just in this recording and keep going and start on to uh, number three. I like it. All right. Thanks very much. All right. This, this concludes our uh, second in the three-part series on seeing and understanding risk. Join us next time.